John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. accessed entry 705.MT0210, certificate number 52050. Florence Lawrence. Mr. DeMille, do you mind if I say a few words? Thank you. I just want to tell you all how happy I am to be back in the studio making a picture again. You don't know how much I've missed all of you, and I promise you I'll never desert you again. Because after Salome, we'll make another picture and another picture. You see, this is my life. It always will be. There's nothing else. Just us. And the cameras. And those wonderful people out there in the dark. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. I feel like I already know the answer to this, but when was the last time you watched the movie Sunset Boulevard? Uh, at some point, just in the last year or two, I upgraded my Sunset Boulevard DVD to beautiful high-def Blu-ray Oh, and watched it again. I'm a huge fan of Sunset Boulevard. I like all movies narrated by dead people. Mm-hmm. Any movie with William Holden. <laughs> I mean, I just like leading men to be kind of flabby and dissipated <laughs> and to have smoked themselves into looking 15 years older than they actually are. That's, that's what I'm into. No, I love Sunset Boulevard. Wait a minute. What is a Blu-ray? Is it, some, is it a disc the size of a record? Are we going to explain this to the future? Well, yeah. I mean, We're gonna, they're not going to have it for no, sure. No, they're going to be listening to this on Blu-ray. Like, this is going to be the first high-def uh, time capsule. It's just like... Uh, it's the same shape as a compact disc or a oh, it is. It's an optical disc. The laser, I think, is in the blue wavelength, oh, hence the name. Wow. But the picture's better. better. Yeah, it's... Uh, and it, you, can, it's, you can tell it's noticeably better. Yeah, it's twice the vertical... Uh, Ips or dips. Rows of resolution. We... Um, have we talked about it already on uh, Omnibus? It seems like something we would have discussed, but that, um, that my... My in-law, who was Paul Allen's librarian, told me in very stern terms never to get rid of physical media. Did, I, we, did we have this conversation? I think we've talked about this on the show. I mean, I have a thousand. I know you do. <laughs> Two thousand movies sitting in my basement. I would, I would say that's a conservative estimate. Because I'm afraid that if I just switch to streaming, then... It all goes away. The evil corporations can... can 
take and put away what they like. Yeah, at, crazy. At, at their whim. Crazy to think that uh, that that no less than Paul Allen and his and Paul Allen's estate at, at, after he died, they discovered that they really didn't own most of the stuff that they had uh, that they compiled. The main problem being Paul Allen, you don't own enough stuff. Come on, Paul, figure it out. The uh, I mean, the problem with physical media is that it's no longer. Uh, you know, we have cuneiform carvings of people complaining about bad ingots because that's a, you know, clay tablets are a nice, reliable, right. permanent medium. But millions of little tiny dimples on a kind of flimsy metallic disc pressed in China at the cheapest possible cost. I have no idea if, like, my disc of Sunset Boulevard might not even play right now. In fact, <laughs> In fact, I'm going to run home and check. We have no idea how long our civilization survived. <laughs> we have no idea how long any of my Billy Wilder movies will survive. So do you like, do you watch films from the silent era? Do you, do you, do you only look at them through the lens of Sunset Boulevard or do you go all the way back to the source? I only watch movies from the silent era. I feel like sound ruined film. They used to act with their faces, John. I like to have an organist come up from uh-huh, the floor. Uh-huh. Even when I'm watching at home, I have a pipe organ come out of the floor of my room. Uh, I like silent movies. I'm not put off by black and white at all, which I hear is a thing today with the kids. Weird. Uh, I uh, I like old, like in Sunset Boulevard, all these kind of old silent actors come out kind of as a joke. She has a weekly uh, Norma Desmond, the aging movie queen, has a weekly card game where she invites her has been washed up movie star friends who she calls the Waxworks. Yeah. And it's, you know, and if you know old movies, you're like, whoa, that's Buster Keaton. Whoa, that's H.B. Warner. He played Jesus for DeMille. You know, whoa, that's, it's not Paul Negri, but it's some kind of, it's some kind of a sex symbol vamp type. All these cool cameos. And I like these movies. I think a lot of the comedies still hold up because it's all slapstick based, which hasn't changed since ancient Greece. And... You know, the dramas are kind of goofy just because, I don't know. They're, they're, they're super campy. They're, they're melodramatic. Why yeah. don't they age? I guess it's because maybe the movie stars, they're, they're very heavily made up. Super made up. I mean, it's all based on a kind of vaudeville. Um, uh, they hadn't yet figured out. <clears throat> well, first of all, they hadn't developed the close up yet. Right. So everyone, everyone's playing to uh, a pretty wide shot. And they're using that that the over emotion of the stage because they're trying to project to the back of the room. They didn't realize, you know. I think acting for film evolved over time, and people realized subtle. you could do very subtle facial expressions, and the camera would capture it. Even after Griffith, Griffith invented the close up, I feel like you often see silent movie stars just doing too much, just not realizing they're going to be nine feet tall <laughs> yeah. on the on the screen of the of the Roxy. Do you remember going to Pizza and Pipes? <laughs> I never. I went to Pizza 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 Pizza. I've eaten Pizza Pizza and Pipes, and I've listened to Pikes. Uh, I think I've only been once, but yeah, they always had. What do you think about movies, uh, restaurants that always? There's a French bistro by my house that always has a Godard movie playing. Is that right on the wall? When I was a kid, yeah, Pizza and Pipes uh, had saved. That was the era when they were just trashing pipe organs mm-hmm. right and left because they're tearing down these old theaters or modernizing them and turning them into multiplexes. And they had these, the original theaters had these built-in Wurlitzers that were <clears throat> 10 stories tall and they were getting just wholesale shipped to landfills. And so this pizza parlor saved a, some theatrical Wurlitzer pipe organ. It was like a chain, right? 
yeah, but I don't know how many there were. It feels like it was kind of a Washington. I, I just knew it was here, thing. so I didn't know it was. <laughs> Somebody saw an opportunity. Yeah, I know how to make right. pizza. I know where there's a pipe organ. But it was, you know, a pipe organ where the uh, where the keyboard, there was like seven keyboards stacked on top of one another. And it had all of the sound effects that they use for silent movies, whistles and bells and, you know, uh, kind of Foley effects. And there was somebody always playing the pipe organ while you're eating your pizza? Yeah. Then we would get, you'd get pizza, sit at long picnic tables, watch a silent movie while the organist, uh, you know, scored it with all the you know, the comedy stuff and like, you know, they would do the, do the classic. And how did it play? Were, were people just laughing with mozzarella oh, coming awesome. out of their mouths? I mean, when you were, when you're a little kid, like, I don't, I'm not sure that you could, I don't know if I differentiated between styles of media comedy. I wouldn't then have thought, I mean, I guess I would have realized this is old fashioned, but but everything's old fashioned when you're a kid. Yeah, sure. Like you're not you're not even aware of the difference between the Beatles and Napoleon. It was just before you were born. Yeah, that's right. It's everything. And uh, I think that's the that's the key. If you can start kids early enough on that stuff, they'll think the Marx Brothers is funny forever. Right. And if you don't, they're they're just going to be awful. They're never going to get it. No. Right. Well, you know the the silent film era. I'm sure most futurelings are well aware. You you feel like these are going to survive? I feel like the silent <laughs> film era. We're all uh, the future loves Clara Bow. <laughs> we're always going to wonder. All living beings are going to wonder about that moment that you know crossing that threshold um, into a, into a place where we can see motion pictures. It's the first pictures. time. You yeah. know, it's the first time the future is going to be able to see uh, in some kind of 2d moving representation what the world it's the first evidence of how stuff looked beyond still photos yeah you can see you can see a live action person i think that is going to be huge for them even uh i think now maybe we're in um maybe the the lull the the sort of uh an era where we appreciate it the least because i think up until very recently you know, Lillian Gish lived into the late nineties. Yeah, she uh maybe she got an Oscar nomination for Wales of August in like eighty nine or something. Yeah, like she, she was, was still acting. She was I think she lived until nineteen ninety nine. She was definitely ninety nine years old. But so we've only just lost the very oldest of the silent film era actors. And up until this point, I think there was a there was a certain amount of reverence. Maybe in the 1930s and 40s, uh, like the Sunset Boulevard era, uh, silent film actors had become has-beens and, yeah, and were working, you know, f- sweeping the studio and whatnot. Because of the singing in the rain stuff where their voices sounded weird, it yeah, turned right. out. Yeah. But then even in, the, even in the 60s, there was a resurgence of appreciation. Huge boom. I think the baby boomers having nostalgia for, I guess it would have been a little before their time. But, yeah. th- but they loved, you know, all the early trivia games of that era are like university students trying to identify supporting actors from <laughs> Preston Sturges movies and, you know, golden age of Hollywood stuff. And, yeah. and they loved that connection to the past. You think about the, you think about the sixties kind of, and this is going to be an entry, a future entry in the omnibus, but the sixties nostalgia for the twenties, <laughs> right? Uh, that, that's a, that's kind of a quirky, wonderful, weird thing. I guess it's the, it was the last time the, the counterculture 1910s. was ascendant. It was right. just women in feather boas on tables instead of, Right, women without bras in the mud. Well, and I guess it was nostalgia for the for the teens, nineteen fifteen or whatnot. Straw boaters and and uh, 
and you know unicycles and whatnot. But um, but yeah, right now at this moment in time, we're so disconnected from the media. The the before now, there's just an abundance of video every day. Yeah, if your favorite YouTubers are producing three hours of new content for you a day what need do you have to go look at Von Stroheim movies? Right. You know, you're just never going to get there. And I don't, and I, there's 20 steps between you and that. Like maybe if you have time, you'll watch the Godfather, but (laughs) you're not getting before 1970. Right. But I've got four hours of unboxing videos and ASMR to listen to. Exactly. There's yeah. there's just two. You feel like you're not keeping up with the, the new stuff you're binging. There's new episodes of glow. Like you're you're never going to like watch that. At least with the old Netflix model of stuff would come in. You'd, it would come in the mail and you'd have a physical reminder of the aspirational thing you thought you were going to watch. Yeah, like right. I'm definitely <laughs> going to watch this Italian neorealist movie. And then it just sits on your TV for six weeks. While you watch sunset Boulevard again. And now Netflix comes up streaming and tells you, forget all that. You know, there's new episodes of orange is the new black. Yeah. You're never going to get to it. But I, <clears throat> I imagine that, uh, that after this period, uh, where there's just this glut of kind of garbage media and also a glut of, of great media, but there will be over and over a kind of return to this initial period, this amazing threshold. And it was a big part of why we started the omnibus, the recognition that just like the beginning of motion pictures, everyone prior to the introduction of motion pictures is you know, they've disappeared into the mists of time. We'll mm-hmm. never see George Washington walk across the stage. And you... Uh, well, never say never. That's true. Advances in cloning. That's true. Time travel. That's true. There's lots of different axes you could use to get George Washington on stage. We do have his wooden teeth, but we're never going to see him in his time. That's true. We could clone him from the teeth. Time well. travel. Time travel, man. I'm counting. I'm banking on it. Don't talk to me about time travel. But the idea that there is a that there's an aperture and that everything prior to that aperture yeah. doesn't make it through. No and, matter what its merit, yeah, it doesn't even get a chance. There's no council saying, you know what? Actually, uh, you know this uh, Joseph von Sternberg movie is pretty good. <laughs> there's there's no such body. There's there's a bunch of old people who are still watching it and they're gonna die. But that first generation of silent films, um. They are, uh, they do, they do seem a little corny, right? In some cases, um, you're surprised when they age well. There's a, yeah. there's a few moments that that where something crosses the the century, and you're excited. Uh, some authentic glint in somebody's eye, some camera move that would actually be surprising today, some comedy stunt that would be daring today. Well, like Lillian Gish, for example, the first time I saw her as a kid, I immediately fell in love with her. You're, Just her face and her manner. Um, Where did you see Lillian Gish as a kid? Probably watching her at Pizza and Pipes. But you know, there were lots of opportunities to watch silent films in the in the early 1970s. Sure, yeah. I mean, there was an era where that stuff. I guess that we didn't talk about this. The main thing is this: these old movies would come up on TV. Yeah, local TV stations would put them on Friday, Saturday nights. Uh, So you know, you have this whole generation of all these '70s filmmakers. Your Coppolas and your Scorseses. They just grew up watching this stuff on TV every night, and they were like, "What is this?" And and uh, and I I definitely felt that way. I mean, if you can imagine a seven year old Lillian Gish fan in 1975, what are that Lillian, was me. What are Lillian Gish fans called? The, the, uh, yeah, the, the Gishers. Gish bones. Uh, she has a she has kind of a she has kind of an elfin pixie like face that's 
aged very well, according to how standards of beauty have kind of ebbed and flowed. Yeah, some some of the silent film uh, stars, you go, hmm, that's interesting that that was a major star. Like if you saw Louise Brooks at Target today, you would do a double take. Yeah. Because she looks, she has a fantastic contemporary look. Right. But that's not true of every star. Not true of every not star. Not true of Pola Negri. Well, what's funny is that we do know the names of some of these actors, but that is not... That was not originally the case in um, in the movie making business. the 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 first movie makers were um, actually developing the film stock, the cameras, uh, and that was what made. I mean, they were making movies because they were the ones that had invented the the media. Yeah, I feel like Thomas Edison has a directing credit on all these early movies of a guy sneezing or a train robbery, just because he had the patent on the camera. Well, he he. Uh, he not only had the patent on the camera, but he in, he had one of the very first uh, film studios. You got to have you got to have content for your invention, or nobody's going to buy it. That's right. Edison uh, Edison invented the thirty five millimeter camera, and uh, well, it started like um, he had a the the original stuff was like a, those flip cards, you know, the kind of like you <laughs> watch a horse run that in slow count motion. As a movie, Edison. <laughs> and Come on, he had a thing called the kinetoscope. What if those were the size of a big movie screen and there's just some guy flipping them? Like it's like a drive-in screen, but yeah. somebody's like, <laughs> some just guys just running back and forth trying to get the next frame. Of- <laughs> but there was a, there was a competitor. Uh, there was a competitor to Edison and Edison's film company. Uh, and the competitor was called the Biograph Film Company. And in response to Edison's kinetoscope, they invented the mutoscope. Mutoscope. Which was a similar kind of technology. Oh, like mutant, like change or whatever. Yeah, like, yeah. Uh, I got it. Muto, 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 as in, yeah, right. Um, that sounds weird now, right? Mutate, but I don't know or, why. Uh, Mutos, yeah. It seems like a yeah. mad scientist from the fifties is gonna right. is gonna zap you with the, the mutoscope, mutoscope, and you're gonna grow uh, a, a thorax. But then Edison's first movie projector was the Vitascope, and and uh, Biograph responded with their Biograph projector, and it actually Biograph had to use a a different film format because Edison had a copyright on 35 millimeters. So, so everybody's making their own film, yeah. loading it in their own cameras and then making their own and then films. Making, and thousands of people go to the theater to watch um, man walks by hedge right. or whatever, like the five second masterpiece of, of 1917. The first, uh, well, it's a lot earlier than that. Oh yeah. It's like turn of the it's, century. Yeah, yeah. It's like 18 in the, in the 1890s. Wow. Um, yeah, the original films were short. They were, uh, I think, at first very much just documentaries like, hey, Charlie Chaplin is here. Because the whole gimmick is like, this is a new thing. Right. Like, you, it doesn't have to be good. You've just never seen something move on a wall before. Come see things move on a wall, the, the Marquis said. And a lot of them were just a single shot, right? They, they were just one camera and it was a continuous shot. The comedies, slapstick stuff came in before drama. It's like um, analogous to uh, those... Um, those things where you make your eyes, what are they called? Where you make your eyes go blurry and then you see dolphins or whatever. Somebody just sent us one of these in the omnibus mailbag. Yeah. Made of words. It was a quote from Blade Runner or something. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so it doesn't have to be good. You're just amazed that there's dolphins at all. It doesn't matter if they're attractive <laughs> dolphins, bone structure. Do the dolphins have a good story? Do they learn anything in the third act? It doesn't matter. Like dolphins have appeared and that's how, that's how movies work. But that that started to change, I think, as audiences got more sophisticated. Um, they wanted more, I mean, they wanted a fuller emotional range. Because they can go to the theater. Right. They're still competitors. 
And the and it, it might be a gimmick, right? Like I'm sure everybody at the time is like, this will never last. Oh no! I think that people were thrilled by really? it, right? You yeah. don't you don't think people were like people? I bet everybody over forty was like, the theater will endure. <laughs> the idea of things moving on a screen—that's a dead end. That's a creative dead end. People will always go back to the book and the sheet music. <laughs> uh, well, I you know it's hard maybe to to put ourselves in the shoes of of people that were undergoing such a dramatic revolution, right? I mean, I don't think once the telephone arrived on the scene, I can't imagine the people said, this is just a fad. I'll never want to talk to someone across the country. On a telephonic on device. On a telephone, why, I'll go back to writing letters in, in unintelligible Edwardian script. Yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe everything advances all at once and it just feels like you know, the beginning of the internet where everyone's like, this is clearly the future. I got to get in on this. Yeah. Well, and I, I, uh, this was an era in particular, the early 20th century where you got the airplane yeah. and the automobile. And, and, um, I don't, I, I, I think it probably felt like a incredible leap forward. Everyone goes to man sneezing and they're like, I will never watch Hamlet again. <laughs> I now have man sneezing. <clears throat> but as things got more sophisticated and more and more film companies popped up, um, there was a lot of there was there was a lot of uh, of competition, a lot of kind of uh, well, uh, obviously a lot of non standardization, and and as as theaters were built, purpose built for film, uh, actually distributing the films became. And I think that's still true today. Like the distribution of films is a major part of the motion picture industry that we don't we don't really think about. But the number of theaters that can that uh, that will show a film and the number of copies of a film you could get to theaters and uh, there were cabals that were uh, trusts and so forth. That sure, there was some vertical thing where so the studios would own their own theaters. The studios would own their own. That's, that's why the, there are Paramount theaters in every in every uh, town. Right. Uh, Edison actually uh, gathered a group of different studios and filmmakers and formed a trust. This is also the era of the big trust called the Edison Trust. And it sought to... Um, to price out any competitors and they had a sort of top down structure where they had an exclusive deal with Kodak to make the film. And, you know, they, they really, um, he's trying, he's trying to make sure he's got a movie monopoly. Yeah. He's cornering the market. Eventually he was, um, Eventually, there was antitrust legislation that, a little, that a broke little, it apart. A little light bulb appeared over <laughs> Teddy Roosevelt's head, oh. and he was like, "I know, I'm going to take out Thomas Edison." Boo! That guy's getting too big for his pneumatic britches. But in the in the early days of these silent films, um, actors and directors and producers, none of the people that that were part of the production were credited. Um, the 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 sense among the film owners of, the, of Edison and his cabal was that uh, the actors needed to remain anonymous. They were merely Why? servants of the production, and if we the technology is the star, <clears throat> right? And if we start crediting them, then they're going to demand more money. I mean, they had to know this was going to be a losing battle because a lot of the great 19th century celebrities were stage actors. Right. You know, people would, Sarah Bernhardt would come to your town and, you know, it'd be like Seattle when Rachel Maddow comes to town, the, the streets are empty because everybody's, 
Everybody's oh. got to go see Sarah Bernhardt, age 70, play Juliet. Well, you would think that would be true, but for the first 15 years of film... No named stars. No, not only no named stars, no names at all. The audience could... The audience had no way of knowing who who directed the film, who starred in it. There just weren't credits. When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free plus twenty dollars off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout that's butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout i think about how i mean aren't they turning they're losing a lot of money at the merch table right like if if stars and genres and stuff had fans, then people would want to go collect lobby cards of whoever and go see the next movie with him in it. And I feel like they, they were <clears throat> short-sightedly, I guess, imagining that the $5 a week that they could pay them, um, if they had to raise it up to $10, they weren't going to make that back in lobby cards. That's Yeah, that's not crazy. I mean, if you've just got an interchangeable array of people... Right. Then you don't have to pay them anything. They come in for the afternoon, they sneeze or they walk past a hedge. Right. Or <laughs> rob a stagecoach or whatever for those the style of the time. And these movies, you know, they were uh, uh, actors and studios, directors were making a movie a week during this period. Wow. Um, like there were innumerable, like TV. innumerable actors that were, uh, that would make 60 films a year who just sort of, you know, would walk from, uh, Walk from soundstage to soundstage, sneezing. You know, they'd actually get filmed walking from soundstage to soundstage. And then that would be displayed <laughs> that a, on the kinetoscope. That's a new movie. Like, <laughs> <laughs> actor walks on set, puts on cowboy hat. But one of the early, uh, one of the early actors in uh, the si- silent film era was uh, a young woman by the name of Florence Lawrence. It rhymes. It does. And it's a stage name. Her real name was Florence Annie Bridgewood. Wait, so she chose a goofy Ralph Malf style. I guess the rhyming name is catchy. I mean, we still see it today. Jack Black and Shaquille O'Neal. Hmm. I mean, it, it, I never thought about Shaquille O'Neal being kind, a, a does, rhyming name. It does kind of trip off the tongue. Evil Knievel. All these people made up their name. Not Shaquille, not Shaq, but the rest of these people all made up their names. So I guess Florence Lawrence just thought that would... Well, it's not entirely made up. Her first name really was Florence, and her mother was named Lotta Lawrence. And oh. That was her stage name. So she just took her mom's maiden name because there was a, a family brand. It wasn't her mom's maiden name. It was her mom's stage name. Oh. So Lotta was a vaudevillian. Lotta Lawrence sounds like... it's uh, yeah. Lotta seems like the name of a Bond Oh, right. Lotta. Girl. Lotta. <laughs> Lotta Jugs. <laughs> 
The Bond movies are classier than that. Not it would be a lot of cleavage, but it would yeah. be like I D G E. Right. Uh, so her, so Florence Lawrence, she gets not, uh, honestly. So Lotta was a was a, a like a traveling actress. Her um, Florence's father was like a like a coach builder. They were immigrants, but Lotta had. Um, Lotta had gotten the, you know, bitten by the bug of the stage, as we call it. We don't, actually. No one's ever said that before, the bug of the stage. Tread the boards. <laughs> uh, and Lotta took her little baby, Florence, on tour with her from vaudeville house to vaudeville house. And as soon as she could walk, she was she trotted out on act. stage in the act. The right? baby. By the time Florence was uh, was, like, able to able to stand on her own, she was already being billed as baby flow. She was juggling flaming torches or, well, it's funny because some of the records that you read, um, describe her as being uh, baby flow, the child wonder. But when you dig a little bit deeper, her actual billing was baby flow, the child wonder whistler. <laughs> so I, I, I can see why they dropped whistler. <laughs> it, being the baby wonder is one thing, but I, apparently she was a great young whistling prodigy. How do you discover that a baby is a whistling prodigy? I don't know, but that was a huge draw, I guess, in vaudeville. Imagine times. how excited Lotta must have been when her otherwise untalented daughter turns out to be a, a great whistler. Uh, so <laughs> Whistling had just been invented, so that's right. it was a huge deal. Wow, listen to that. Although you couldn't hear it on silent films. Because right, but this is vaudeville. Dogs yeah. could. Dogs could hear it. No, they had a little. There was a key on the on the uh, Wurlitzer that just sounded like a human whistle. <laughs> but so uh, Florence Florence traveled with her mother, and it wasn't until she was twelve years old that she ever went to school. Her mom kind of took a break from from the from the circuit, and Flo like went briefly and got a little bit of an education. She was whistling at a tenth grade <clears throat> level. So well, and you're also I mean think about the education you're getting backstage in the vaudeville circuit of the late 1800s. Like an education in like her mom's boyfriends, probably. Rawr. Uh, but she appeared as a, as a kid in a, in kind of an early silent film, another one of these like walk past a hedge type things. But she, at one point decided that, um, and she adopted her mother's stage name. That's where she got Florence Lawrence. She took Lawrence and grafted it on. And I mean, I, I imagine in, in 1910, that was pretty saucy. It sounds funny to us, yeah. but I guess at the time, nothing was corny yet. Corn having just been invented. Right. Fe, Fay Ray. I just thought of Fay Ray. Fay Ray. There you go. 1930s. I it, think that's a pseudonym. It was pretty popular to it, do this, I it, guess. It, I guess they thought it would roll off the tongue. Ken Jennings. Ken Jen. People do say Ken Jen. Who? Like people will write me and be like, or, you know, right. hey, Ken Jen. It's like, uh, yeah, which Joe Rowe. Which do, they, they, do they call you Joe Rowe? They have called me Joe Rowe. That's not bad. It's not as good as, a, what did you want to be called? Goldenrod? Yeah. <laughs> it's not as good as Goldenrod. <laughs> uh, but uh, Florence Lawrence was, uh, her, her first major breakout role, if you can describe it as a breakout role, if you're uncredited, <laughs> um, was cast as Daniel Boone's daughter in an, in an Edison picture. And she was cast as Daniel Boone's daughter primarily because she could ride a horse. And Florence Lawrence, we'll see, has a, had a tremendous skill set uh, that was maybe a, a component of kind of the dramatic way that she lived. She was born in 
uh, in Ontario, Hamilton, Ontario. She's not even a real American. She's not even a real American. Even back then, we were having to import our uh, leading men and women, huh? From Canada, and, right? All our best actors come I from I mean, Canada. today, we spend years stripping away the Australian accents from, from <laughs> rugged men because apparently we can't produce any of our own. Well, I'm sure all of, the, all of our television actors are from England now. Yeah, and they have to do American accents. Hey there. Where sometimes they hit the R's come too hard. Come on over here. But her father died at a young age, and her mother moved her to... Uh, to the Americas for their vaudeville travels, but she she could ride a horse. She got she got um, she got cast as Daniel Boone's daughter, and then in 1906 started making uh, movies for the Biograph Studios. And we've met them already. They were one of Edison's um, competitors. Did she play Daniel Boone's daughter in every one of these movies? No, just so that the would first be fantastic. One. I know, right? The further adventures of Daniel Boone's daughter. Daniel well, Boone's daughter in space. <laughs> Daniel Boone's daughter in the court of Louis the Sixteenth. Daniel Boone's daughter learns to ride a skateboard. Uh, no, so she she had more range than that. She and, could play Davy Crockett's daughter, Johnny Appleseed's daughter. Nope she she uh, was just then old enough to start playing an ingenue, mm. um, and uh, dramatic films were coming into popularity, and um, the Biograph Studios paired her with no less than D. W. Griffith, your favorite film director. Uh, no, mm. nobody can like Griffith. Anymore when was the last time you his, saw birth of a nation? His movies all have titles like boy, isn't the clan great. <laughs> and the clan will sure. show these minorities. Have you watched uh birth of a nation? Yeah. Uh, well, I had to watch it in college for a film studies class. And, uh, you know, I, and I didn't know, like, I was like, well, of course it's old fashioned. So right. all, all the racial stuff's going to be bad, but you're literally not prepared for <laughs> The clan, the clan to have the heroic third act climax where they where they defeat the evil black faced uh, white actors playing you know rapist uh, sharecroppers. Right. It's it's terrible. It's it's not watchable. D. W. Griffith. Uh, you know, it's funny. The 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 outcry at the time to Birth of a Nation, the racism in it, was significant enough that his next film uh, was called Intolerance. But is it, a, is it like intolerance of me and my free speech That's rights? That's right. That's exactly right. Uh, he, he And intolerance was also a huge hit. I mean, D.W. Griffith. Uh, intolerance it, is a huge epic where he built the whole walls of Babylon right. and had six different time periods and thousands of extras. Sure. And Jesus was in it. And I mean, it was. Um, Daniel Boone's daughter meets Jesus. It's crazy. It was a huge influence. D.W. Griffith was a huge influence on European filmmakers. I don't have to tell you this. You've taken a film studies class and so has every few. Really? I don't know if they do. Well, if you don't, if you're not aware, he just did stuff we take for granted, just like, 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 like the, the close up. Yeah. yeah. Or, or even like, like certain kinds of match cuts where the camera is looking at something and then it looks at a different part of the scene. Like Edison hadn't thought of that, you right. know? And Griffith was, Griffith was starting to make what they, what they call two reelers, which is. How, how long is a two reeler? Like half an hour? Yeah. 20 long, minutes? Longer than, longer than the five minutes that the, that. I mean, the short films, what, what did I see? It was something like um, uh, Biograph Pictures made 3,000 short films between 1895 and 1916. And they're like five or ten minutes? Yeah, five-minute long films. Um, but the two-reeler then became, you, you could do a, a film that was epic in scope. And D.W. Griffith, if you've seen Intolerance, it's such an astonishing production. There were... Thousands of extras, giant sets. Um, 
his films often weren't profitable just because he spent because the production costs were so great. But I mean, he was inventing movies. So these guys weren't wrong to not name directors and actors. Like as soon as these Griffith and von Stroheim guys actually got a little clout, they just started spending they started hundreds crazy. of thousands of dollars that weren't there. But um, Florence Lawrence uh, paired up with D.W. Griffith. Made several. They made several films together. So another actor at Biograph Studios uh, was a man by the name of Harry Salter. Harry Salter. Mm-hmm. And Harry Salter uh, met Florence Lawrence uh, during the making of Romeo and Juliet, a film that uh, only one version of Romeo and Juliet has ever been filmed, this and was it was a- this one in 1908. Did he change his name to Holter Salter? Ooh. Holter Salter. Harry Larry, actually, was his <laughs> stage name. <laughs> and then he, then he realized, oh, wait, 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 wait. That's, that Harry Larry's weird. a porn star. Um. But he uh, he also like D.W. Griffith also started as an actor, and during this period, I think if you were an actor who had some ideas, you hey, it's just like today, man. <laughs> walk over behind the camera, and now you're the director. Uh, Salter started directing as well, and he and uh, Florence Lawrence got married, and they um, Florence was becoming popular within. People recognized her from film to film. They could, they could tell it was the same actress, and they really liked her. Oh, that's a new thing to it see was, some to be like, oh, 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 she was Daniel Boone's she daughter. She was Daniel Boone's daughter. Didn't she ride a skateboard in that space movie? <laughs> Suddenly, and, there's Torrance of Florence Lawrence, but there was no way to identify her. Right, and so she became known as the Biograph Girl because she was in all the Biograph pictures. Oh, the the, the corporate guys love this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like she's known by the name of the company, and she's helping the corporate visibility. That's right, and nobody knows who she is. And this, so, this happened in the like fifties and sixties with like the people who would draw uh, licensed comics. Like nobody, like people could tell that these one Uncle Scrooge comics were really good. And were really, you know, really good adventure stories, and the rest kind of sucked. But they didn't know the guy's name, so they just said, "Oh, yeah, this is by the good duck artist." <laughs> and it wasn't until like the '80s that people were like, "Oh, that's Carl Barks." Is that right? When did when did comic book artists start signing their work? Uh, in the '50s and '60s, but Disney was very late to the party. I think to this day, if you draw a Disney licensed thing, it's, oh sure, you know, all the stuff said by Walt Disney, as if he's sitting at home drawing the Sunday comics, right? While he's running a movie studio and, and theme parks. But it's funny that movies, movies have movies. the same thing where it would just be like the Biograph Girl. Well, and and there was she started to recognize and and uh, and Harry Salter, her husband, they started to you know, understand that she was a, a more valuable commodity than she was being given credit for. Right, and um, they uh, they were contacted by a man named Carl, and his name is somewhat it, it's not. Um, not obvious how to pronounce it exactly. It's spelled L A E M M L E. I've always assumed. I've always assumed it's Lemley because in old Hollywood, there they would say Carl Lemley has a very large family, and I oh. think and I don't know if it was a joke about his womanizing or about the kind of his little mafia of of people that he had run his studio. I never would have thought to pronounce it Lemley, but what is this old Hollywood where you're hearing people? Say Carl Lemley has a very large family. Gloria Watson invites me over every Saturday afternoon to play bridge <laughs> at her house. And this is one of the jokes. 
I don't know why. I, well, so I know the rhyme, but I don't even know what it means. Carl Lemley has a very large family. What, like, what, what, what does that mean? Oh, I guess he was. A, it was an Ogden Nash poem. Of I see now, and it was because of, uh, it was his nepotism. He would give his ne'er do well kids jobs at the studio and whatnot. He was famously a, a is nepotist. Is that yeah. a thing? Okay, so Ogden Nash rhymed Lemley and family. So it must be boy. Ogden Nash really skewered him with that one. I bet he, yeah. How do you even recover from that? Like that's, that's the sickest own of the, of the era. Well, Carl Lemley started a a motion picture company called the independent moving pictures company. And he, Oh yeah. I am PAC. Yeah. Imp. He wooed Florence Lawrence and, uh, and her husband, Harry Salter over to Imp. And he, um, he manufactured the first uh, like publicity stunt in that he planted a story in the you know in the in the entertainment press or I guess would have been what would have been the popular press that the biograph girl had been killed in a streetcar accident. <laughs> the very first publicity stunt has blood. Yeah, it's just like <laughs> she was run over by a streetcar, and there was. Uh, wait, why? Can't you just say she adopted a puppy no, or she's in a wait, hot air balloon? Wait, wait, wait. It's a three-pronged publicity oh, he's, stunt. He's, he's got a second act. She she got killed in a streetcar, and no one who knew who the biograph girl was, what her name was, but they but you know, she was by this point a fairly beloved uh film star. And then after a week of mourning for the biograph girl. He published an advertisement with the headline, We Nail a Lie. The Imp Movie Company, Independent Moving Pictures, is here to debunk this terrible rumor that the Biograph Girl has died. <laughs> and in fact, her name is Florence Lawrence, and she's coming out with a new picture on Imp called The Broken Oath. This is exactly like when a pro wrestler changes promotion. <laughs> Like switches to a different circuit and they have to be like, you know, we're, we can't call him, you know, we can't call him the road warriors anymore. Now they're the Legion of Doom. So they, but they, did they go from being good to bad at the same time? Sometimes. Yeah. They don't get hit by streetcars much. That would be good if like, they would be like, uh, Sting just got hit. Ric Flair just got hit by a streetcar. And now look who we have. You know, getting hit by a streetcar was a real, it apparently was a real, uh, a real danger in the time because my great aunt, great, great aunt, maybe, uh, was killed by a streetcar here in Seattle's, uh, Rainier beach neighborhood. Here's just a partial list of famous people who have had streetcar accidents. Photographer, Matthew Brady, uh, who died in his Anthony, mm-hmm. Anthony Gaudi, the, the, the Barcelona really? architect in a streetcar accident. cartoonist, Al Cap, labor leader, Samuel Gompers, Frida Kahlo, uh, you know, that's what caused her leg injuries. Teddy Roosevelt, Edward Teller, Kurt Waldheim, just a, a few of the famous people wow. who all were in streetcar accidents. Stay away from streetcars. They're just, they, were, they all had like buzzsaw blades on them or something. Well, so this publicity stunt works. And then uh, Lemley's big, you know, the, the culminating uh, third prong of the publicity stunt was that in St. Louis, he introduced Florence Lawrence to um, to her adoring public. Like she appeared 
in the first kind of... And this had never happened before. Never happened People before. would see the star in person. And people mobbed the event. They said as many people came to see her as had come to see William Howard Taft in on, on his presidential campaign. Because celebrity culture kind of exists. You know, Sarah Bernhardt or Mark Twain comes to town and it's a big deal. But this is somebody you feel like you know because you've seen him at this giant size right. having all these adventures. And then there they are. That's That's... That's the first time this kind of unmediated thing has ever happened. And Lemley obviously had a vision, but no one else expected it. Le- least of all Florence Lawrence, who was, you know, stunned. There was a crush uh, in the crowd. They ripped the buttons off of her jacket. It was a, it was like a major event. And uh, she was being paid now $250 a week, which was an extraordinary amount of money. Kind At of, the time. It kind of is. That's a good living. That's that's six figures yearly in today's income. Yep, that's right. Um and uh and so now she was making now she was making pictures for Imp and uh and uh, under her name. And she was the first named movie star. The basically the first movie she's, star. She's the first movie star. Yeah. Wow. Um and I've never heard of her. That's kind of a bummer. Yeah, well, and she because she because she has a somewhat Tragic arc, as oh, a lot of... Uh, there's going to be another prong. As a lot of, you know, and now for the rest of the story. Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com start that's unlimited access to thousands of lessons exercises and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks just go to musician.com slash start that's y-o-u-s-i-c-i-a-n.com slash start i'm looking at her picture now and um maybe she has fantastic screen presence and just amazing acting gift and a wonderful quality but she does not look like she's not a classic beauty like the later screen sirens I mean, uh, she does not have the delicate features. For example, she she has kind of a, I don't know, a girl next door. Quality. She was she was described even at the time as statuesque, um, but she did she by all accounts was extremely captivating. Uh, had a captivating range of emotion. I guess beauty standards was, do change. I mean, maybe this is a beautiful girl in in 1915 or whatever. I think that's very true. I mean, like we said, Lillian Gish or Mary Pickford. Um, their, their looks translate to our contemporary eye in a different way. Uh, but yeah, I mean, my grandmother had a similar sort of, um, a similar look to Florence Lawrence and was considered, a, I think that's where you get the, the phrase, a handsome woman. I was looking at, uh, like some of Marlena Dietrich's early sound movies. Uh, and Mindy, my wife just cannot get over the fact that Marlene Dietrich, you know, to her is not, has no star quality. Really? She's like, why is she singing again in this one? She can't sing. Look at her weird eyebrows. Like, you know, to her, to Mindy, she neither looks nor acts like a movie star. And yet at the time she was this magnetic 
presence who had to insure her legs for a million dollars, you know, right. and it's, it's not even clear how she's a novelty actress to us, much less a sex symbol. Well, think about Betty Grable. I mean, right. Betty Grable was like the sex symbol of 1941. And, um, yeah, it's a very, it's a very, like, you know, girl next door look. I guess that's what people were looking for. If then. you're if you're fighting in in Europe or in the Pacific, but yeah. you know, my suggestion is go next door. Knock on, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> you don't have to go down to the Roxy to see the girl next door. Go annoy the actual girl next door. Well, so so now uh, Florence Lawrence is a big star, and as Edison feared, she is she and and in order to keep pace with um, with Carl Lemley and his his new star. Now all of a sudden, a lot of actors and actresses are are being named, and uh, directors are being named. Uh, Florence and uh, Harry Salter go to Lemley and get him to fund the creation of their own film company, the Victor Film Company, where um, Florence is now being paid five hundred a week and Salter two hundred a week to direct. And they're making pictures together. And this is still, you know, they're making a picture a week or a picture every two weeks. Are these still like little two reelers? No, I mean, well, two reelers, but they're, 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 I think what you would have called a feature mm-hmm. at the time. It, it, the, the movies are getting longer and, um, they have not reached the length of the human bladder yet. So they're free to keep expanding. That's right. It's like the pop song, the perfect pop song is three minutes long because that's only as long as you can sustain your attention. So I guess apparently that's true of movies as well. They should only be three minutes Man long. Man should walk by a hedge, and that's about it. As someone who watches war movies on my other show, Friendly Fire, the number of them that are two hours and 40 minutes long, <laughs> it's like, what? so few of them need to be that long, really. I, uh, we went to the new Tarantino movie, which is two hours and 40 minutes long, and a full hour in the middle is uh, the making of the pilot episode of the 1969 Western Lancer. For no apparent reason. Like the movie just stops so you can see how the pilot of Lancer get made. And uh, I think if I see it a second time, I will be prepared for its kind of leisurely pace. Yeah. And I think, you know, Tarantino is now a big enough name that nobody can tell him to like, let's let's pick up the pace here a little. I think, <laughs> right. I think his original editor might have passed away, actually. And uh, so now he makes these kind of sprawling, leisurely, undisciplined movies. And uh it's I think just like, it's neither like, of us were really ready for this experience. It's like the wedding scene in Deer Hunter where you're like, I just attended a wedding, an actual wedding beginning to end. I didn't have to bring a gift. Except I, I didn't, you also weren't getting drunk, which, That's right. is, which would have made it palatable. Yeah, there's no, uh, there's no open bar. Uh, the Victor Film Company uh, is successful, but at a, but not very long, about a year later, it is absorbed into the brand new Universal Pictures. Oh, yeah. Lemley becomes the head of Universal. That's right. Right. That's right. And you know- His name the, is still on the, like, you watch Bill Boris Karloff Universal Monster movies, and they all say, like, produced by Carl Lemley. I just, I just had a flashback of this. Well, you know, Biograph Pictures, um, they went out, they were the, so all of these films were being made in New Jersey and New York. And it was Biograph Pictures that first went out to California in 1910 and made a film called uh, In Old California. And they were out sort of wandering around and. Um, so it sounds like the popularity of the Western is the thing that gives us Hollywood. Like if they had gone to Florida instead. Can you imagine what L.A. would be like today? 
It's just a little highway terminus with a with a port at Long Beach, I guess. I mean, the discovery of Hollywood was this film old, in Old California was also made by D.W. Griffith, and they're just out in California trying to make a, you know, a, a like a Spanish right uh, Des- desert set Western kind of a historical piece. And somebody says, "Well, there's a little, you know, there's a little village over here called Hollywood. You should go take a look at it." And they made this film there. And D.W. Griffith was like, it's kind of amazing out here. Like, there's all this free land, and it's sunny all the time. And um, and how are you going to keep them down on the farm in New Jersey after they've seen that's the, right. the orange groves? And of- it was it was pretty quickly after that that uh, that pretty much every film company left New Jersey and moved to Hollywood. It was the it was just the making of this one film that invented Hollywood. And L.A. was. Had L.A. already boomed in any way, or is that what leads to no, modern I, L.A.? I like, don't think there's a reason for L.A. to be right. there at all. So all the water war stuff is down to in old California. That's right. In old, it's D.W. Griffith again. He causes so much trouble. <laughs> He's just you know not no longer content with just causing lynchings all over the South. <laughs> uh, Florence Lawrence takes her uh, the the money that she's made from the success of her films in a Victor uh, film company. And buys herself a, a pretty nice estate, buys herself a beautiful motor car. You know, her father had been a coach builder. And so she was, a, you know, she was a early adopter. She was a suffragette and a, and a, an early adopter of kind of like, I'm going to drive myself type of thing. She bought, she bought herself a, a big, cool car and decided that she was no longer, she was retired from the movie business. She was going to go live on her big estate. She and Harry Salter had some marriage problems and he, uh, he bugged out for a while. He sounds like he was a little bit of a, he sounds pretty needy. He sent her a bunch of needy letters from Europe. He's like most of those movie star husbands who doesn't like to realize that he's more replaceable than she is. Yeah. Right. right. He sent her a lot of letters like, I'm going to commit suicide if you don't love me. And event, you know, I think she took him back for a while, but during the period of time that she, uh, was driving herself around in her open top sports coupe. And it's a sports coupe of the era, you know, 1912 sports coupe. So it was basically the size of a battleship, small battleship. Um, she invented the first turn signal. Wait, wait, really? Cars didn't have turn signals. And she devised a mechanical device that would take, that would flip a little hand out on either side of the back bumper, pointing in the direction that she intended to turn. I feel like I respect her more now than anything else you've told me. Yeah. I have no way of judging if she's actually a good movie star, but I now know she's like a pretty decent, like, handy woman. Mechanical engineer. And then she invented the first brake lights, (laughs) which weren't lights. It was a little sign that flipped up on the back bumper that said, stop. (laughs) So she was tinkering with her car and, and... Devised these two very important things, which she didn't think to patent. Um, they uh, and then she invented the windshield wiper. Wait, really? Yeah. Was it just a sign that said your windows are dry? <laughs> no, it really was like <laughs> some sort of primitive mechanical like windshield wiper. Um, so she, I mean, at, up until this point, none, uh, no cars had these features. And she was just there, like, at her new estate, tinkering away on her beloved sports car. Not a lot of people have cars and free time, and she's got a knack. That's right. That's fantastic. Uh, But then she 
she kind of she she wanted to rejoin the film industry in the in the early 20s she kind of had a made an attempt at a comeback but as we've seen the movie business was changing rapidly there were new stars uh people barely remembered her and she this was, happens today in movies yeah. the same way if you you know if you disappear for 5 years you might as well be dead she wasn't really she wasn't really getting the big roles she had a terrible accident on stage in the filming of a, of a movie that there was a fire stunt that went awry some accounts say that she tried to save another actor and was badly burned others say that it just you know the she just kind of fell into the fire she uh, broke her back or injured her spine in the same accident and so she was um wow she was in tremendous pain was paralyzed for a time uh as a result of the scarring from the flames she had a she had plastic surgery there are so many stories about her and there are accounts where the plastic surgery was a nose job to try and make her more saleable um Others, uh, other accounts are that the surgery was to correct this giant scar across her chin that a lot was of a result stuff, of the flames. A lot of the stuff came out of the studios, which has its own publicity department just spinning stuff to keep their people in the papers and to make sure there's flattering accounts of them and to keep the bad stuff out of the papers. So it's hard to know. But by, you know, 1926, she's 40 years old. So, um, in actress terms, in actress 100, terms, that's 150. Even then, right? Her, her, uh, she was a uh, probably more so then when life expectancies were lower. <laughs> That's right. Like 40 was 150 for everybody back then. She was, uh, you know, she, her, her career, her career fizzled out. No one, no one remembered her anymore. Um, and that now talky pictures were coming into the, into the game and you had new, you know, Mary Pickford, Douglas Fairbanks. You had these big stars that were coming online. Was she okay? Was she in happy retirement with a nest egg, or do we, was she was she out on the street? Well, unfortunately, she had a, a lot of money, uh, but lost most of it in the stock market crash of nineteen twenty nine. And she had these these really bad health issues. She divorced Harry Solter. She married a guy, actually a guy that uh, that was a car salesman. Her love of cars persisted, <laughs> uh, and they were. They were married for a while, uh, for quite a while. She started a cosmetics line that was making makeup in Hollywood for specifically for use on the screen, but that kind of fizzled out. And then she uh, she was married a third time to an abusive alcoholic. It was a real short lived marriage, and by the 1930s, she was living in poverty in constant racked with constant pain she developed a like a a bone degrading illness that oh, was wow. that was poorly diagnosed during this period and this is something that um we should maybe do another omnibus on louis b mayer the director had a policy in the late 30s to employ uh, destitute silent film actors as extras on his film. That just seems mean. Well, they there was no retirement. There was no, yeah, you know, there weren't any unions. And he's, so he's given them work, I guess. There were all these film actors from the silent era who had been famous, who were now wandering around Hollywood, just, uh, you know, wax figures. 
And so Louis B. Mayer would pay them 75, uh, 75 bucks a week to show up and, and, uh, be in the background of Ben Hur. Norman, Norma Desmond would never do that. No, she would never, she's ready for her. So she was working, um, she was working in Hollywood as an uncredited invisible extra in Louis B. Mayer films making 75 bucks a week. And, uh, Three days after Christmas in 1938, she um, she took a combination of cough syrup and ant poison and committed suicide. Oh, that's, uh, a, that's awful. Which is terrible. And it and actually that was um, that was the same right almost almost in that exact moment, Buick introduced a car with the first turn signals. Uh, the first like factory turn signals. And if she'd had that patent. Yeah. Who knows? But um, her grave, she was buried in the Hollywood forever uh, cemetery. uh, And her, her, um, her grave was paid for by this fund set up by Mary Pickford to ensure that like Hollywood, early Hollywood people didn't just get buried in a pauper's grave, but the fund didn't pay for a gravestone. And so she was buried in Hollywood, what is now called Hollywood Forever Cemetery, but in an unmarked grave. She's, it's still unmarked to this day? Well, like, wh- no. So why, why have we not corrected the abhorrence of Florence Lawrence? So, God, you should be in jail. From 1938 to 1991, 91. her grave went unmarked. Come on, Mary Pickford. And then in 1991, what in almost all accounts uh, was an unnamed, anonymous British actor, oh, actor wow. paid anonymously to have a gravestone erected on her behalf. And I scoured the world trying to figure out who is this unnamed actor, this British actor who cared enough about Florence Lawrence to anonymously pay for her headstone. Like who would even know about this, this now footnote of, of movie history. It has to be some student of the, uh, of the art of acting. That's right. Who, who, who do well, you think this is? Well, it was no less than vanity fair magazine. My bet noir. Your bet. I didn't know this. Wait, your bet noir is vanity fair magazine. <laughs> One of them. I have a, I have a pretty long list you, of bet noir. A series of bets noir. <laughs> yeah. Bets noir. Uh, it was Roddy McDowell. Okay. So I was going to say, I bet it's, um, I bet it's, some, you know, gay man about town type. Right. Who feels a deep connection to the actresses of the past. Noel Coward or something. Yeah. I thought it would be like Gielgud or something. Roddy McDowell. Roddy McDowell. Former child actor, Roddy McDowell. And I have met Roddy McDowell. How have you met Roddy McDowell? Well, Roddy McDowell. So my dad was an actor in the fifties. Uh, here in Seattle, and he he uh, he played at the the Cirque Theater. And during the course of his time as an actor at the Cirque Theater, he uh, he he appeared in a performance. He appeared in a play with Rita Moreno. <laughs> uh, he met Marlon Brando when Brando came to pick up Rita at the theater. Uh, my dad told the story as though he was dating Rita Moreno. I can but, see why he would tell it that way. But I haven't been able to. I actually tweeted her once and was like, my dad has a story about you. I don't know. I'd like to double check it with you, but she never tweeted me back. 
Come on, Rita. Uh, but Roddy McDowell appeared in the 1970s at a production at the Cirque Theater, and my dad took me to it. You know, I was, whatever, seven years old. But I loved him from Planet of the Apes. Oh, yeah. He's in Planet of the Apes. And so... Um, so my dad took me backstage and introduced me to Roddy McDowell. And this was before, I mean, my dad never thought of it and I never didn't know it was possible to get him to autograph a napkin or whatever, or take a picture with me. But I have this, this pretty vivid memory of Roddy McDowell and his stage makeup sitting there giving me a little chat. Is he answering your questions about Planet of the Apes and bed knobs and broomsticks? No, I was just, you know, I was just like kind of in awe. And you missed your chance to ask him why. Why? Well, he hadn't done it yet. But, but maybe he was already a fan of hers. Right. So at some point in the early 90s, in, in his 60s, Roddy McDowell decides, maybe he was doing a bunch of uh, gravestones for unmarked graves. Maybe this was his hobby. He was a child star right. in old Hollywood. So he was... He would know, have... He, he did feel more of a connection than most people his age. I mean, maybe he worked with her on some crazy film where she was a she was an uncredited extra and he was the... The bubbly young star. I don't know. He was he was a child actor even as a baby, so it's not impossible. But uh, I don't know. He must just feel like he's a part of the Hollywood community, and these are his forebears. I feel like this could be an example to you. Use some of your your <laughs> ill gotten game show money to go put headstones on all the the people from This Could Be Your Life. Uh, yeah, I'm, that's my new goal in life. I'm going to travel the highways and byways of this great land, finding unsung game show and trivia celebrities and giving them the send off they deserve. Thank you, John. I'll drive. And that concludes Florence Lawrence entry 705.MT0210 certificate number 52050 in the omnibus. Now, uh, we assume social media has gone the way of physical media and indeed all media as you, uh, scour the ruins of, New New York and New New Jersey and New New South Wales mm. in your... Uh, the New New Delhi Delhi. <laughs> Do you think there's still pastrami in the ruins of the New New Delhi Delhi? Uh, in your nuclear future. Uh, but in our day, uh, John and I were uh, devout followers of, of social media. Mm. We, were, we were frequently on all the great platforms. Not just followers, we were content creators. We were thought leaders and influencers on Twitter, for example, where I was at Ken Jennings, John was at John Roderick, and the show was at Omnibus Project. Uh, You could find at Omnibus Project on numerous other platforms. You could find John finagling privileges from his movers and ripping out paper. That's right. Are you throwing away your Florence Lawrence notes on camera? Here it is. Here, crinkle it up into the mic. There we go. It's an unusually visceral ASMR... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, I did. I got some uh, I got some movers to come out and help me move and it was just so uh, you could Instagram them. Yeah, it was it was it was all it was all an Instagram economy at situation. John Roderick. So you paid them in Bitcoin. I paid them in fun. Which is what the internet is made out of fun. Hopefully their company paid them. Well, you know, it's a, it's a, yeah, I think they did. It's a company called bus boys. Now I'm, uh, I'm buzz marketing them. Don't do it on our show. They're not giving me anything, (laughs) but you know, it's a startup like that. Like at least three people said to me, it's kind of the Uber of movers. I was like, boy, you guys need to stop saying that. Shouldn't they be called mover? Mover. Movers. I would move with mover. Uh, we were, uh, 
on where else were we? We had an email address. Oh, Isn't yeah. that fantastic? This is amazing. For, this is the best part. For some time, we had an electronic mail address. Yeah. I don't want to say we were the first, but we were very early adopters of the idea of uh, having mail be electronic. And people would uh, type little messages up. Mm-hmm. And instead of sticking them in a wall in Jerusalem or throwing them into the sea, mm-hmm. they would submit them to a uh, an SMTP server. That's right. And you could reach us at uh, theomnibusproject at gmail.com. It will emotionally be the equivalent of sending a mess, putting a, a piece of paper in the wall in Jerusalem or dropping it into the sea. It kind of is right now because I haven't read the account in a few weeks, but I'm going to. So here's a, here's our suggestion. We um, Now that we are an independent podcast and have our own Patreon account... Uh, which wh- which you could contribute to if you wanted to. Uh, but what is the uh, address for that? Let me just check. Oh, look, it's patreon.com slash omnibus project. Yeah. What, what a convenient place to show your support for the program. Well, what we have not done is determine uh, what the special advantages are for different tiers of joining. Different levels of commitment. And so one of the ideas was that we would uh, we would read your letters on air and respond to them. Uh, but of course, this will require you... Talk to us about time travel. Which John famously does not I, want you to. I don't want to talk of, about of it. All the things you will talk about with people. Time travel is very low on the list. But yeah, if you can if you can wind one of your tentacles back through the the you know, across the wormhole and get us this message. Enter the Tesseract. We will uh we'll reply to it on the show. That is coming soon. Uh you could send physical mail if you have some way to get that into the Tesseract. If it fits in the slot, the Tesseract slot, you mm. can send that to... The old Tesseract slot. Right in the old Tesseract slot, if you know what I mean. You could send that to Omnibus Project at P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. Uh, you can commiserate with other betentacled or beclawed uh, perusers of the Omnibus at our Facebook group, which is called Futurelings. Um, there's a Futurelings equivalent on Reddit. There are two. The competing Futurelings. We need to pick a horse here. And Omnibus Project. It's not Omnibi. No. It's, we need to pick a horse Omnibi. here. I don't go to Reddit. No. Because within five minutes, I would probably be complaining about reverse racism and the SJWs, and then I'd be stuck there forever. <sighs> Um, in a virtual a virtue signaling loop, <laughs> an anti-virtual signaling loop. Uh, I, I try not to go on Reddit either; it infuriates me. But there are people who love it, and plenty of people who hate Facebook. So that's true. And I'm sure all the best people find that seems the valid. omnibus fora, right? Like yeah, it self-selects for the very coolest people on Reddit. Yeah, you just go to Reddit for the exclusive content of the omnibus fora. Don't go to a single other. Subreddit, please. Except for choosing beggars, which is kind of fun. Hmm. That seems problematic. Futurelings, from our vantage point in your distant past, where we have no interest in hearing you talk about time travel, we also have no idea how long our civilization survived. Hopefully, the canon of silent movies, the Florence Lawrence catalog will be preserved. A complete Blu-ray set, the complete works of Florence Lawrence. A lot of those movies are probably lost. That just occurred to me. A lot, right. of, a lot of silent movies. F.W. Murnau, the greatest silent movie director. He followed up Sunrise with a, a circus movie in the late 20s. It's now gone. Gone. It was the follow-up to like the one of the, the first Oscar winner for Best Picture. And it's gone. There was a giant catastrophic fire that 
just recently in a warehouse that had all of the um, master tapes of the great recordings of the 20th century. And although the studios like to assure us that uh, nothing significant was lost... Yeah, I saw REM worrying about it. Oh, everybody. All their masters I mean, were there. you know, all the Simon and Garfunkel, everything. It's just all, it all went up in flames. All the Simon and Garfunkels? No, Do but you, mean you know. even including Simon and Garfunkel? Both of them. All of the Garfunkels <laughs> all in the world two. are gone. Uh, but uh, if it wasn't transferred onto CD, I mean, then those are terrible sounding transfers in a lot of cases. Anyway, let's not get into that. We hope and pray that our record does not go up in a giant conflagration. We've got a plan. We do. Don't worry about that. It's a gold record. It's going to be fine. But if the worst to our society and our world comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word because Ken and I are not immortal, at least not yet. But if and, and futurelings may be laughing a rueful laugh as we lord over them from our immortal temple. What if they're listening to this with us? And we're all like, ha, we, we thought were we were so going to die <laughs> 6,000 years ago, but we didn't. Wait a minute. Are you saying that 6,000 years from now, we're going to be like two dads with a slideshow? Like, come on, listen to our old podcast. We got hundreds <laughs> more of these. You're in luck. <laughs> but if Providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. <laughs>